Welcome to Knowing Nature. I'm your host, Victor. In this podcast, I speak with other environmental educators about their experiences, practices, and perspectives on helping people reconnect with the natural world. In this episode, I'm speaking with Dimithu Mahitia, Education Manager at the Soam Center in Tower Hamlets Cemetery Park. Dim walks us through a few of the sessions he runs, including sessions on soil formation and rocks, which take advantage of one of the special features of the cemetery park, the historical gravestones. He also talks a bit about navigating the topics of death and decay which inevitably come up teaching in such a unique setting. This episode was recorded on location with Dim, but because we had to have doors open for ventilation, we also had to suffer with some of the noises which come from being at a biodiversity hotspot in an urban area. So you'll get five bonus points for each bird species you can identify in the background. So, Dim, it's your first time on the show. Could you tell us a bit about yourself? So, my real name is Dimithu Mihitia. I'm the education manager here at Tower Hamlet Cemetery Park. I've been working here for about 15 years. I've been in conservation, working in conservation since the mid-90s. Um, yeah, I love my job. I'm very, very lucky. I get to work outside all day and work with young people from urbanised backgrounds and teach them about conservation, wildlife, and the joys of being outdoors. I'd look at workshops about food chains, habitats, forces. I do other sciences, not just the biological sciences. I'd look at materials. But everything was based outside. You know, so all the workshops had like had an outdoor element to it. Post-lockdown, I wasn't working that much. Uh, I was working with one or two small groups from... Uh, young boys with uh, behavioural difficulties uh, and bespoke groups and things like that doing bushcraft with a couple of schools that wanted to get their kids out and about but compared to before lockdown yeah we work with 7,000 school kids a year which is pretty much half the primary school age kids in Tower Hamlets and over the 15 years I got to know a lot of people and I've even had uh Teachers turning up saying to me, you taught me, <laughs> which I think is quite fun. Uh, before we dive more into the school program, could you tell us a bit of what got you into nature? Do you have any memories of things that you think might have really gotten you interested? So I'm really lucky. My, both my parents uh, are very into gardening. Both parents originally grew up in Sri Lanka and... I was very lucky. I had the privilege of going to Sri Lanka quite often as a child, maybe every three, four years as a child, and um, sitting in toilets as a small child, looking around and seeing all these different bugs. A bit like a zoo. Freaked me out at first, obviously, but, you know, after a while I was fascinated. The other sides of things that got me into conservation was I was quite lucky. My mum's sister lives in Australia. I was a bit I wouldn't say a naughty kid, but um, my mum felt after my GCSEs, that period of time between that that summer holiday, she felt that I was probably going to get into trouble, and she probably was right, and deported me to... uh, You were transported to the colonies. I was transported to the colonies (laughs) to live in Mount Isa. If you tell that to an Australian, Mount Isa, they look at you like, what? So Mount Isa is like middle Queensland, 
and it's a it's a mining town. My, dad, uh, my uncle was a mining engineer, and um, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I loved the desert. I loved the outback. It really got to me as soon as I got there. And I was really lucky. I, I, I visited some wonderful places from Steve Irwin's zoo to, um, which I didn't really know at the time was, you know, it was just Australia Zoo. Uh, and I went to the Great Barrier Reef and spent a lot of time in what would be considered the outback. So that really jolted uh, a real passion for nature. And then 16 to 18, I did become a bit of a tearaway, didn't really go to school, didn't really do A-levels, but I was quite lucky I went to uni uh, at a time when university was free and I was able to get on to a UCAS, uh, uh, even though I didn't get A-levels, I was able to go through and get my foundation course and I did environmental management at university in Manchester Metropolitan and I was very lucky, basically, uh, you know, as most young people don't really know what they're doing, but I kind of stumbled into a passion. I mean, it wasn't easy, you know. Up until I had this job, it was kind of like little jobs here, little jobs there. And I was lucky. I worked for the Natural History Museum. I worked for Wildlife Trust. I worked for other things. and But there were little, little jobs here and there. So you you did environmental management, but now you're in environmental education. Like, how did that move happen? Did you just fall into it or did you... So when I did my course, um, environment, environmental management was seen as a bit of a Mickey Mouse course. It was basically like for the people that couldn't do uh, marine biology uh, or people that couldn't get into a geography degree or a straight biology degree, they did environmental management or environmental sciences. Um, I chose the more management side because it was learning about um, woodland management and wetland management and looking at things like that and also looking at the Rio Earth Summit. Uh, after uni, I did try and go into more, so I worked for uh, the Environment Agency for on a project called the Landfill Directive, which was all policy and regulation. And very quickly I realised that wasn't for me, I'm much more practical, so I started volunteering in zoos, started volunteering in small conservation organisations and realised um, I've always been, my mum was a childminder, so I've always been surrounded by, by kids, so working with young people was pretty easy. And I, you know, those years I moved more into the education side. But I do have a, you know, I've got an ecologist, I've got an ecologist in my title, so I do practical work as well, you know. But I'd say, like, um, I'm a more of an environmental outdoor educator with a basic understanding of environmental management. Let's dig into the program that you do here. Uh, how much of the program would you say is um, science-focused or do you do sort of any other curriculum areas or is, is the bulk of it science, would you say? All my workshops back in before COVID were very science-based workshops. But over the last few years, I've been getting more into the forest school side and the bushcrafty kind of side and using the outdoors, not just for science, but for play and things like foraging and bushcraft like gives young people a different entry into like nature as well as adults you know you don't have to be uh, particularly great at biology um to you know enjoy making stuff out of wood you know or running around and playing in the woods so it's nice to have that other um, way of interacting with nature other than the 
the science one is the more practical, hands-on, utilitarian maybe uses of nature. But I think that's that's fine, right? That's humans need to live. You need to have some kinds of hands-on practical skills. So mm-hmm. I think there's value in that. Friends I know that are things like tree surgeons, you know, absolutely know loads about plants and animals and how to look after uh, a space, but don't have a science background as such, you know. So yeah, you don't need science to appreciate biology. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. Well, no, definitely. I think it's um, the, the science, as most of us would think of science, is very much the like Western European yeah. like conception of science. It, it reminds me of um, going back to uh, a paper that I discussed with um, other folks on the show, and we were looking at other ways of knowing, and we were talking about some um, in other cultures, like Aboriginal North American cultures, would characterize themselves as being really empirical, like particularly empirical, which is um, something that is really valued in science. But when you look at Aboriginal ways of knowing, they're often not they're often not seen as scientific. But the the empiricism is the same kind of empiricism that you're talking about with like tree surgeons or people who learn about a subject matter on the job is you know you develop this knowledge by you test it with with your experience you know every time a tree surgeon encounters this tree they're essentially testing their knowledge about that tree over and over again it might not be formal science education but that doesn't mean that it's not scientific knowledge you don't need to be laboratory based as such you know so yeah yeah I call myself a scientist, and I call I, I refer to the children as you've seen as scientists. I don't refer to them as children. Being a scientist is not about the qualifications you have; it's about the way in which you investigate the world. You yeah. know that empirical, like looking at what's in front of you, kind of perspective. I never really thought about it like that. I never thought, like you know, kids have said to me, oh, "But I, you know, I'm not a scientist." So it's like, yeah, you are, because as soon as you ask a question, how, why, what. You know, you are having some level of scientific inquiry, you know, and then testing these uh, questions is... Yeah, it's yeah. about the process, isn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah, about the process. it's not about the qualifications, it's about the process. Not with my qualifications, are Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, so what, what would you say is the most popular program that you offer? My personal favourite things are quite um, open-ended, exploring, looking at different habitats, are things like um, pond dipping, Everyone loves a good pond. It's like, and every kid loves it. You know, it's physical, it's practical. And then you have this whole stage of like looking closely using magnifiers and microscopes. And then you have the report writing stage where essentially draw it, write down its name. You know, and kids love that. So I'd say that's a popular one. Um, we have some interesting ones that are quite unique. I do a workshop about rocks and weathering and soil and soil makers, people really like that because you can pretty much cover a massive subject of science that takes a term in two hours. And that's one that makes particular use of the cemetery site as well, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So being a a historical, one of London's magnificent sevens, as in cemeteries, we have graves and kids instantly, instantly ask about that, you know, and... You know, no matter what, I have to do a whole talk about, you know, what do you think happens to the physical body if you were to dig in here? Do you think you'll find a skeleton? And, you know, I compare it to what they can observe, you know, leaves from a tree. And, um, yeah, we learn about 
how soil is made essentially through the decay of all living things and or poo, you know, which is the decay, isn't it, of living things. And yeah, they really love that. Teachers love it because it is a consolidatory kind of workshop or a good introductory workshop. So it can work in two different ways. Can you walk us through the rocks and, and soils session that you do? So I think that's a subject that a lot of sites really struggle with, I think. Like making rocks interesting to a wide range of kids can be a little bit challenging. So you mentioned already taking advantage of the cemetery aspect and talking about decomposition of bodies. Um, what do you do for the, the rocks portion of that? The first part of the workshop is looking at seven different rocks. I say all seven of these rocks are used, used by human beings for different things. And then I give them four different words. And their job as a group is to discuss and try and work out which rock fits on where. At the, so the four rocks, so the words are eat, which always gets, ooh, eat rocks, you know, eat, uh, roof, uh, ooh, which has been that long since I've been here. Yeah, it's been like a year <laughs> since you've done the uh, session. Um, ooh, uh, eat, roof, burn, and glass. So I'll give them seven different rocks. So eat is salt, uh, roof is slate, burn is coal, glass is sand, and I add quartz and uh, fool's gold, iron pyrite. Their job is to sit there and try and work out which goes where. Uh, then we stop and we discuss as a group and say, look, this is how science works. Did I give you books? Did I give you computers? No. You shared your ideas and used your knowledge, and now we're going to discuss with each other and have some level, I don't say this, but some level of peer review. I don't use the term. I do, actually. I have used the term peer review, looking at each other's work, uh, trying to work out, using other experts, and we do that. After that aspect, we take them out, I take them out, and we look at the rocks we can find in the park. And most of the graves here are made of limestone or granite. And we walk around, and there's a considerable decay difference, uh, erosion difference between um, limestone and granite so, and kids can see that so we start discussing why do you think this is breaking down quicker oh, what, do you think someone's knocked it down do you think someone's rubbed out the words and so they start thinking and then I bring them back in and then we have four different rocks that we're going to do two different experiments so you've got uh, limestone, sandstone, granite and flint and the two experiments they do is a scratch test so you get a nail and see if you can scratch it if you can scratch it it's hard uh, if you can't scratch it, it's uh, hard. If you can scratch it, it's soft. And then they use a pipette, Ooh, so real science, and some water. And they drop a droplet of water on it. And I say, you've got to be a real scientist at this point. You've got to make sure it's a drop. It can't give you a rock above. And then they look closely and they count to 20, one, two. And if the water goes in, it's permeable. If it doesn't go in, it's impermeable. And then after a while, they work out and they put into piles which of the rocks are permeable, which are impermeable, etc. And then I ask them a theoretical question. Go, oh, so you come up with these ideas that you know, uh, flint and granite are hard, impermeable rocks, while limestone and sandstone are soft, permeable rocks. And then I go, so imagine I've got full mountains, and over 100 years, big heavy animals like me and elephants have been walking up and down these mountains. It's been raining and snowing onto these mountains. And I ask them which of these rocks might break down. So they say, oh, you know, and then you know, generally they're slowly getting it. At that point, after they've kind of worked it out, I take them outside, and there's two graves right at the front, 
and there's a granite grave and a limestone grave that are right next to each other and essentially there's a month difference. And you go, which one looks different? Which one looks older? Everyone points at the limestone because the granite looks shiny and black still. And you go, but they're not. And you've got to ask them why. And a good, oof, it's a hard thing to say, you know, because when you take it out to the field, I, it depends on the class, it depends on, you know, a good 60% of them will get, ah, oh, the limestone is soft and animals might walk on this and it's permeable, so it will take in water and after a while it will crack, you know, and that's why it looks older. And there's also large graves that have completely collapsed that I'll talk about. Look, when the living things die, it's decay, but when rocks break down, it's called erosion. And that is, you know, my whole, that whole topic is literally our planet's made of rock, surrounded that rock is soil, and that's the next stage we get to. Now let's look at the soil. And it's, I'm really lucky, you know, like compared to all the other sites, I get four hours sometimes with the kids, the whole day where I can, you know, apostolize my science. You will listen. Well, you can, and you can really, um, walk them through it at the pace that they need. Even what you just talked about, like that's a, that's a lot of content, right? That's a lot of units because you're talking about different types of rocks. You're talking about properties of materials, which is a different science unit. And it's all there in one session, but it's... It's also all the biology because you're looking at, when you look at decomposing, you look at microbes, yeah. microorganisms, you look at fungi, you look at plants and animals, you know, it's all, uh, yeah, and essentially that's what biology is, yeah. the study of all four, you know. Yeah. I imagine the cemetery setting makes it probably a bit more relevant I mean, being a, a woodland, yeah. I think if we were just a cemetery without the nature reserve, no. But because the cemetery is there within the nature reserve, you can look at death. So yeah, yeah, it does definitely lend hand to it, you know, especially with the rock side of stuff. I remember doing exactly those experiments with rocks, but the I did it at the Royal Ontario Museum, and it was in like a classroom space. We just had rocks. On tables in front of us, and we were, we were doing these tests to like learn how to identify rocks. We were doing, you know, the streak test on the tile, um, scratching with different things to find the hardness, looking at the color. But there was no, like, I I still remember the session, so that's that's good and something. Yeah. But it's not, um, I don't know, it didn't it doesn't stick with me. And I, I was always one who was really interested in science, right? Um, just because I thought it was fun and interesting. But I imagine if you're, if that's not you, you can look around and think like, oh, why do I need to learn this stuff? Like, I'd rather learn something else. But if you can see it in action in the world around you, you can look at these graves and be like, oh, look, this stuff that I learned in science, here is, here is it in action. Like, maybe this will influence my choice of, of tombstone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, doom. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, like, you know, I remember doing things in, like, places like little science centres or history centres and not really grasping what was going on because there, there wasn't any context to it. And so I, mean, I do try and push, like, you know, there's a reason why this happens, you know, when I talk about um, all, anim all habitat, all animals need to find full things in a habitat, you know, from the monkey in the jungle to camel to you and me in the urban habitat of London. You know, there has to be a, a level of context for them to think about. It, you know, what well, for me, that's how I think. You know, some people can, I guess, you know, particle physicists and things like that can live like that. I can't personally. I need to. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a nice approach, though, that I think other 
um, historic sites could potentially make use of because I, I imagine you know other historic sites you'll have access to different stones from around your site of different materials just building materials for the buildings and you can look at different rates of weathering this is particularly true in and around london i think because yeah. um you know during the industrial revolution there were a lot of issues with essentially acid rain in london so you have a lot of weathering on certain mm. on limestone buildings you compare them to the brick buildings you look at the uh, the natural history museum and it looks kind of like a sandstone at first glance but then you think, wow, it's held up really well compared to buildings just across the street that are made of limestone, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? And you think, oh, why is this building, you know, it's the same age, but this one's held up better. Oh, actually, this is terracotta. terracotta yeah, yeah, it's yeah. not sandstone. So it's, you know, I can see some kids starting to make those links of like, oh, this is why I learned science. Like, actually, can it affect the choices that I we make in the world? Based on a lot of the reading that I've been doing, there is a connection between um, kids having a positive connection with the natural world and then wanting to actually do things to protect it. So there's there's this sort of theoretical connection between like valuing nature and then valuing it enough to actually take action to do something on problems. So do any of the sessions here, do you feel like gives kids that opportunity to I'd hope so. I can't. I can't prove it. You know, a lot of kids will. I reckon there's a a point in time of their age where they're so consumed by their hormones that they don't really care about anything. You know, so eleven to fifteen, they'll be so engaged in their own world. You know that. You know they might have a something to say, but more likely. That will come out when they're 16, 17, 18. Mm -hmm. You know, a bit like uh, today's guy who was saying, actually, with our forest school, we were attempted to run a forest school with uh, a group of boys with behavioural and um, uh, social issues. And um, he was actually saying the it's the older kids that wanted to come rather than the so the post-16 lot were the ones that were more interested than the under-16s. Mm -hmm. And to me, that kind of made sense, you know, like... Yeah, we're offering something fun to them. What's fun is not necessarily what you know. Mm -hmm. What is your favourite session to deliver? Well, I worked when I worked at the Natural History. Did, did you do the? Is it the microfossils workshop? Can you? Did you? Do you do that? There's not a microfossils workshop anymore. Oh man, you're joking! So that was to fifteen year olds, and that was wicked. So a woman called Sally Collins. She developed this workshop and basically she got a load of silky clay and their job was to process this uh, clay mud and take out the microfossils. And this is a really boring sounding workshop, but man, it was engaging. You know, I, 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 I loved delivering it. And it, like I said, it was mainly 14, 15, 16 year olds, which were, you know, so deep in their own brain that they don't really care about the outside world unless there's someone they're attracted to sat next to them, you know, and, um, but we gave them a bowl of uh, this uh, different, like, uh, clay stuff, and what they had to do was process it, so they'd put it into a microwave, break it, make it hard, then rinse it out with water, and then slowly do this, and over process it slowly broke down to essentially these tiny, tiny grains of sand, and then they put that underneath a microscope, and as soon as they saw focus, bang, the whole thing changed. I was like, wow, 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 because 
well, these are tiny little beautiful shells or beautiful minerals and beautiful shapes and crystal shapes and things like that. That was super engaging. That's really sad they got rid of that. I might do that here. I was going to say, is there a similar is there a similar session that has that kind of result here? Yeah, when as soon as you bring out, like if if I do pond dipping, you know, lock kids are going, oh, there's nothing here, and it's like, ah, oh, now let's look at it underneath the microscope, and it's like amazing, it's absolutely amazing. And there's a couple of new artists, uh, so we have artists in residence here, and there's a new group of artists, and they're called the Queer Ecologists, and one of the artists was telling me that they do. Um, they look closely at compost, really close with microscopes. And microscopes are fascinating. Once you learn how, if you, if you talk about having a decent microscope, that doesn't confuse you, you know. But, ah, oh, these kids, yeah, I, I really enjoy those kind of workshops when kids like suddenly go, wow! And it's usually, you know, a simple, we call a simple tool, like a kid's microscope is really simple, but really, really beneficial, I think, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, when you use those microscopes, like how do you orchestrate that? Do they are they sharing? Like, they would back in the day. Yeah. So groups of so I'd set up a, a, a table each group. You'd have thirty kids in a class on average. I'd have three tables, and the tables would be split into two. They'd have one microscope, but they'd all have equipment. Mm-hmm. So you'd have a bit of spoon, you'd have a prepare, and it was all just working together. Make a little slide with the animals alive in it, and put it underneath the microscope. And then, ah, oh, let's see what we got. And then as a group, you know, sometimes one person would be doing one thing always, you know, might be a bit of a dominant character, but I didn't really, you know, it's yeah. too short at that point. But usually what I saw was um, them all kind of getting involved, doing different bits, teaching each other how to use the microscopes. It's, yeah, microscopes are good fun. Do you so ever I, use 30 at a time? I do. I do. I'll put them all out if I have to. I'll, mm-hmm. If every kid, like, I'll make sure that, you know, there's enough microscopes for, you know, Actually, I don't have 30 anymore because it's slowly breaking, but I usually have enough stuff, enough microscopes mm-hmm. here. And we, we got a grant to buy these. And um, uh, yeah, yeah I, I, I was really happy we got these microscopes. Yeah. How often do you use all 30 versus this group method? So I'll start off with one as a group, but once they're in it, then I'm starting to put out the others. Okay, you're used to it. Now you can all have your own one. And they've kind of made their own slides to get in. Yeah, yeah, it's little little dishes and not yeah. like, not not flat slides. Yeah, generally I will I will have all the microscopes out at the back, but only one for them to get used to as a group, and then once they're all used to it. So when you've got the groups with one microscope at a time, at at that point, what what is the rest of the group doing? While Drawing, they're... report writing. I say it's a report, like even scientists draw. When you draw something, you look closely. You might mm-hmm. see features that you wouldn't have seen before. So some kids might be much more into drawing, much more into just using the magnifier above the pond tray, looking closely at it. I'm very, very not that person that wants to give out too much equipment. You know, as in, like, here's loads of pictures. Oh, I'll give them keys and stuff like that, but I don't give them, like, a, I do give to very young kids the microscopes. You know, I, you know even year one, I give my, the microscopes out because why not? Will you do that kind of thing just with the pond dipping session, or will you do that with um, like terrestrial mini beasts as well, or plants? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, the problem with terrestrial stuff, I'm in the park, so I'm not taking the microscopes out into the park. What I do with the pond dipping sessions, or the life cycle sessions, or the uh, I do it with plants as well, where we look at you know the parts of plant of, of the flowering plant, and I'll bring them in 
and we look closely at it. I do a seeds workshop on how seeds disperse, so you can bring those to use them in. But usually it's pond life that I use the mm -hmm. microscopes with. And with these other ones, are you taking the same kind of strategy where initially they start with one microscope on the table yeah. and then you just kind of see what equipment would actually help them? Yeah. I don't leave anything on the table. I'm slowly putting on here and there, you know. I, you know, they'll walk in. I'm sorry, I'm looking around and these things aren't there anymore. But I'd walk in and they'd walk in and there'd always be a table of microscopes and they can see it, you know, all the equipment they can see. It's interesting that you talk, uh, that you mentioned like that giving out equipment only when it's useful. Because I think, um, you know, back in, in, in my early days, um, we would give groups like a, a pack with all of the stuff that they would need through the whole session. Yeah. But what we found would happen more often than not is kids would just start shuffling through all these different papers. They just want to explore what's there. And we're like, oh, actually, we don't need to do that. And some, we don't always give out all the equipment either. We just find like, no, this group is getting along totally fine. They're doing everything we want them to do. They don't need the extra prompts and help that we have on hand. Yeah. But if they don't need it, then we just don't give it to them because it, it can become a distraction yeah. or it can um, be too directing of their thinking, right? If you're like, actually, you guys are on like a really interesting different track that I wouldn't have thought of. I'm not going to give you the other stuff that we have because yeah. that goes in a slightly different direction. Yeah. And I'd rather you pursue the direction that you're interested in because it's relevant and productive. So before we wrap up, do you have like a favorite, maybe little known thing about Tower Hamlet Cemetery? We're going to start running something called Death Cafes. Have you ever heard of these? So one of our friends, she is a woman that is called Mortu Jen, and that is her Twitter handle, something like that. But she's a mortician, she's called Jen. And she's been running things called death cafes and it's about chatting about death and making sure it's not in a context of fear, you know, or mm -hmm. religion. You can have religion in the group, you know, if that's your thing and you can be scared, but it's um, discussing different people's attitudes towards death. And it's, I think it's a really positive thing. Yeah, know. actually being, being okay about talking about Yeah, 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 yeah. Talking about um, it. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I... I I'm one of these weirdos that prefers a good funeral to a wedding. You know, I find them a bit real. You know, like, I know I, I, that sounds so wrong, but like you know, I find it less. I find it a bit real. You know, like maybe you've just not been to the right wedding. Uh, yeah, maybe, or maybe I've been to some excellent funerals. Well, <laughs> you know, there, there and you I go. have been to some excellent funerals where you're just like, wow, this was cool. You know, like a real celebration of life. You know, mm -hmm. that's the saddest thing about funerals now. Like one of our friends died. Uh, one of the women that was working here for many years, and she she died. And another woman that worked here for many years, a young woman, died. And you know we were able to go to the funerals, but you couldn't have a wake, and the wake is super important. Mm -hmm. You know, like to decompress, to you know decompress, um, talk it out. Yeah, <laughs> you know, have a chat about it, and you know, have a drink or. What you do have some cake and get involved in, and death cafes are quite like that. They feel like wakes to me. You know, it's not like uh, the the funeral itself. It's much more about you know, the real discussions that come after death. You know, oh, that person wasn't that great, uh, or that person was wonderful and they did this for me. You know, and yeah, death is fascinating. Yeah, it's it's actually quite a lovely 
kind of side effect of doing all these things of of having Tower Hamlets Cemetery Park be a cemetery park is because that that kind of talking about death and what happens afterwards to you know to the bodies having that just become a part of the conversation rather than be a really taboo topic is something that uh, I don't know I feel like it has is probably quite positive for for a lot of people who are not used to um, encountering the concept because with the kids and talking about um, you know this is a cemetery but you know these are Victorians so you know what happens to the body talking about it turning back into soil I think that kind of These really people part of your history. You know, they did the same things. Yeah, you. they walked the same streets as you. you know, like. Yeah, and I, it's. I mean, none of the kids um, that were in were in today. They handled the topic really well, and um, even though it wasn't a core part of their of of what the their session was about, but it's about talking about the context in which they're doing the setting. Mm-hmm. Right, like it's just these are the questions that the kids had because this is a cemetery that's around them. It's I have had a few incidents. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you know, where young people obviously have had death in their family, I don't really, and sometimes the teachers take them inside and mm-hmm. move with them slightly behind and have a chat, you know, and then hopefully I'll also get to have a chat with them and, you know, like, hey, I'm sorry you're upset, you know, kind of thing. But, yeah, yeah it's real, you know. Sadly, we will have to experience it in one context. I'm not, I'm not saying that <laughs> was a drug beer, but like you will know someone that dies. You know, and yeah, yeah. But the and and the setting here is. Um, I just mean that it's such a because the because it's not an actively used it's, cem- it's a disused cemetery. Yeah, so it's you consecrated. Know, there you go. That's the word. Um, so you know these. It's unlikely that anyone. It, it, that any one student or any person really is is going to have someone who's actually buried within the cemetery at, at this point. I, I just mean that it's it's a nice it's like a safe, safe. Um, a safe way to encounter you know death in cemeteries that kind of thing because it's not um, there's no pressure no. around it and there's we do have issues though. Mm-hmm. you know because being quite a pious Muslim area among certain Bengali people in this area there is a certain things you can't do in cemeteries Mm -hmm. so there are issues where we have so we do we have an outreach a community engagement officer and we do work in satellite parks around here and we try to encourage people that feel comfortable here to go there so we do actually i had one woman from like a catholic school Mm -hmm. a teacher that was going around with me and literally she just couldn't stop like um crossing herself mm-hmm. i did have to say your arms are gonna get really painful soon you know like you know you, and i actually did say to her because she was there i was like your, your behavior is she was scared you could tell she was scared of being in a cemetery but it's rare mm-hmm. it is rare like i always say to them london's been a city since the time of the romans anywhere you walk anywhere you walk there's going to be bodies underneath i wonder how the same groups would react if this same kind of program were happening in in a currently being used cemetery, right? Like in an active cemetery. Because that's a struggle. I think we would struggle with that. I think absolutely. Because it's just such a different context. And I think um I mean the, the way in which you would 
be able to talk about things like what happens to people after they die, like all of those concepts, because because it's still being used. So everything is just way closer. Because most of these graves are so old, it's it's much farther away. So you have you get that little bit of distance, maybe. No, no, I um, agree. It's a really special site, I think. It's got that quite a unique way of blending history and nature and ecology all together into one like quite small space that's packed together in a really densely populated borough. The way I always say, you know, if you cut down every tree and you stood at one end of the cemetery, uh, you could see the other end of the cemetery. It's not actually big. The woodland gives us an illusion of size. And I think, you know, in my head, every park should be like this. You know, most parks only cater for, you know, football players. And they use a massive space for 20 people at max. This is totally unfair, you know, like, as you can see here, by creating a woodland, you can give people privacy, you can give people walks, you can... It's not big. It really isn't big, but it feels massive. And people come in here are shocked when you say, actually, it's only 30 acres. You know, Mile End's 70 acres, Victoria Park's 200 plus acres. You know, people go, oh, it's huge. And I was like, yeah, that's the illusion of a woodland. And it is a gem. It is an absolute gem. Well, this has been um, really great. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us again. Me and Ken have been very happy uh, that you came and chatted to us. So that was my interview with Dim, Education Manager at the Soane Centre in Tower Hamlets Cemetery Park. Again, a very big thank you to Dim and Ken for taking the time to talk to us about the programs that they run. If you want to find more information about education and other programs run out of Tower Hamlets Cemetery Park, check out the full show notes, which are always available at knowingnaturepodcast.wordpress.com. And as always, if there are any topics that you're interested in hearing about, uh, send me an email. You can contact me at knowingnaturepodcast at gmail.com. Also, you can get in touch on Twitter at kn underscore podcast. And we are also now on Instagram and Facebook. So find us there by searching out Knowing Nature Pod uh, on all of those feeds. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. See you next time.